singularity. Hello everyone and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. Singularity One-on-One is a podcast feature of Singularity Weblog where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. As you may already know, my name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and as always, I will be the man with the questions. Today, my guest on the show will be Ramez Naam. Ramez is the author of a very interesting book that I just finished reading called More Than Human. Um, this book was called uh, A Terrific Survey of Current Work and Future Possibilities in Gene Therapy, Neurotechnology and Other Fields by the LA Times, and it also received the 2005 H.G. Wells Award for Contributions to Transhumanism. In addition, Naam spent about 13 years at Microsoft, where he led development on early versions of programs such as Microsoft Outlook, Microsoft Word, and the Bing search engine. So, without further ado, welcome to Ramez Naam to Singularity One-on-One. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Ramez. So let's jump with our first question here. Um, And I would like to start with your biography. And in particular, I want to find out how did your interest in technology begin and about what age and whereabouts? Uh, Well, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Egypt and came to the United States at the age of three uh, and kind of grew up in this culture. And uh, growing up, I was always fascinated by science. Actually, when I decided to go to university, my first love was philosophy. I was very curious about the big questions about life. My second was physics, uh, and my third was computer science. But I figured that you couldn't make a living in philosophy. I didn't want to wear a white lab coat all the time, which is how I imagined physicists. And so uh, computers, my third love, are what I decided to go into. And I'm glad I did. So philosophy and computers, that's a, that's a very, very interesting mixture. So, so let me begin then with this. What in, in more specific is your interest in philosophy? Is it ethics? Uh, is it um, uh, something else? Well, I think uh, there's a lot of big questions. I think ethics is a, a very uh, fertile ground for philosophy. I think epistemology, yeah. the question of how do we know what we know, um, how do we know what is true or what we think is true? Um, and then really, I loved in university philosophy of mind, mm-hmm. uh, consciousness, intelligence, uh, volition, free will, all of that stuff. And and how did you make the jump from philosophy to computers? Because that's a that's a very substantial uh, you know growth or diversion, if you will. Well, I, computers were. Uh, the love that I thought would be uh, viable as a career. And I thought that I could still have philosophy in my life uh, even as I pursued a career in, in computers. And then there, there was, for me, a philosophical aspect of my career in software. I felt that the software I worked on, Outlook, Internet Explorer, and Bing, uh, really helped empower people. So in that respect, it was uh, a, a moral action, if you will, on making the world a better place through empowerment. Mm-hmm. You see, the reason why I'd like to start with uh, questions about the background of my guests is because I would like to, before I connect uh, their background with their work, I would like to find out what's their motivation. I would like to find out what makes them tick. 
and what's the inspiration behind their work. So if you mm -hmm. were to share that with us, what's the inspiration behind your work? Well, I think uh, there were two inspirations behind uh, my book. Um, one was just seeing scientific literature talking about advances in understanding the brain and modifying genetics that I didn't think were being covered in the mainstream press. They looked like science fiction to me. Um, and the other was a response to, uh, at the time that I wrote More Than Human, um, President uh, George Bush was in power. He had a presidential council on bioethics that was uh, concluding that the enhancement of human abilities was uh, uh, fraught with eth ethical difficulties, was probably a bad thing. And that seemed ridiculous to me. So I wanted to respond to that. <laughs> Okay, so let's spend a little time here on your book, which, by the way, I enjoyed immensely and I recommend Thank highly you. to all of our readers. Um, and not, not, I mean, among the reasons is the fact that I think you have a very sort of a fluid and very uh, flowing and readable style of writing, which uh, makes such a, you know, dense and important subject very easy to comprehend. So I think you can reach a very wide range of audience with this. Uh, Thank you. So the full title of the book is called More Than Human, Embracing the Promise of Biological Enhancement. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. Why should we be more than human? Isn't being a human in, in, enough? Is I mean, <laughs> isn't that the epitome of evolution, of intelligence, and uh, of God's creations? Uh, well, we are kind of one step in evolution. We are one output, but certainly not the final word in evolution. Um, but I do think it's a very basic part of human nature to strive for more. It's what we do. You know, uh, our uh, early ancestors, even before we were fully human, uh, learned how to control fire. And we probably co-evolved with fire. Our digestive tracts uh, were able to outsource, if you will, some of their work to the communal cooking pit. So that's actually, that technology has shaped the biological evolution. When we um, first started writing language down, the written word changes the brain. If you learn to read, something fundamental changes in the wiring of your nervous system that is almost impossible to undo. So for a long time, we've been uh, seeking to expand our abilities for as long as humanity has existed. And that has definitely shaped who we are. And so in, in other words, in your view, uh, human is not really an entity, but it's a process, as I think uh, Kevin Kelly said it once in his book. Uh, because like it's that. continually evolving and progressing rather than being a fixed entity. Something like that. Um, our genotype hasn't changed that much lately, but our phenotype has. You know, we uh, live longer. Uh, I wear contact lenses. I have an iPhone in my pocket. Uh, I'm talking to you uh, via Skype. I know you're on the East Coast somewhere. I don't even know where. Um, so we've given ourselves these remarkable new abilities that uh, fit very well into our conception of human, but that a caveman of 20,000 years ago wouldn't necessarily recognize. Yeah, and I have to agree with you. I mean, I am currently in Canada, in Toronto. Oh. Um, and uh, our conversation or our communication skills and capabilities are directly enhanced as we speak via the computers, via the internet, via these microphones. 
Um, and I, just like you, wear contact lenses, even though I suspect I might, I might be actually much bl more blind than you are, <laughs> which would perhaps uh, also make me fit the description of a cyborg properly, because honestly, I would not be able to survive without my contact lenses. I'm minus seven, so I'm almost blind if I take them off. <laughs> um, uh, so, so I can appreciate the fact of how technology has really become part of us, uh, even though most of us may not even realize it, just the clothes that we wear, the shoes that we wear, uh, everything around us, our whole environment is under a certain point of view unnatural or artificially created. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I want to point out that this comes down to even the insides of our brains and bodies. Because you learn to read at an early age, I imagine, your brain is permanently rewired in ways far beyond what we can do with any drug or any gene therapy today. Because for a million years, Homo erectus was using fire, the human digestive tract has evolved in various ways that allows us to be more efficient in eating cooked food, but less effective at eating raw food. So we technology has been affecting not just our, ex, our outsides, but even our, the, our actual biological insides for quite some time. Okay, but let me ask you this then. It is one thing to say, some people would say this. It is one thing to say that we can enhance the external capabilities of our bodies via the usage of clothing or microphones or contact lenses and glasses, computers, etc. It's another thing to start meddling with the genomic structure and the DNA code that we possess. Uh, and people would say that the difference is one of uh, quantity versus quality. And that's qualitatively different step. That's the step of playing God, if you will. Yeah, I just don't see it that way. Or it's not that I do, it's that we have always played God. So here's another way to look at this. Um, you have about 1 trillion cells inside your body, and you have about 10 trillion microorganisms that are symbiotic with you. We have affected them tremendously through the use of antibiotics, through what we eat, and so on. We don't really worry about that, even though there's 10 times as much genetic material in your body that's non-human as there is human. Um, we have always looked for ways to improve our health, to live longer, to be smarter, to be faster, to be stronger, uh, to have children that were healthy, uh, to give them the best chances in life possible. And the, the mechanisms we've used are kind of secondary to the fact that that core desire to find ways to improve the quality of our lives and to improve our capabilities is a basic part of what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. so, so let me ask you this then. Is there a point at which uh, we should stop? Uh, because becoming more than human is a process. You know, one step leads to the next step, to the next step, and so on. Is there an end point? Is there a limit that you can see? Is there something that you wouldn't go beyond? Well, maybe I would choose to not go beyond some step. Maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. Uh, probably by the time I get to such a step, I'll be a very different person than I am today. And so I'd make different choices. Um, but certainly I would not want to restrict the rights and freedoms of others to choose how to define themselves. You know, we have those two basic ways to think about society. One is a top-down model where some central authority or the will of the people tells other people 
what you can and can't be. The other is where people get to choose for themselves. And fundamentally, I believe individuals and families should choose for themselves who they want to be, even if that's something a lot different than who I am. Yeah, I, I have to entirely agree on that. I mean, I grew up in Bulgaria, in Eastern Europe, uh, and spent the, the first uh, 13 or 14 years of my life behind the Iron, iron Curtain, as, as, it, as it was called back in the day, in communist Bulgaria. And, and I have to say, you know, I would take the ability of me being able to choose then the top-down approach any day. So, yeah. so I think that indeed that's a question of fundamental freedom and, and um, ethically speaking, uh, that kind of a first principle is the basis foundation on which we can build a better society. Yes. Um, so, but, but let me go back again to the point of how far should we go or can we go? Because those are two different issues. Many of the critics, uh, such as uh, Francis Fukuyama, say that uh, transhumanism, which is a word I would come back to a bit later, is the most dangerous idea uh, at the moment that humanity faces. Um, another uh, person in your book, in the very beginning of it, uh, George Annas is his name, who is a liberal philosopher and a bioethicist, has called genetic engineering in specific to be a crime against humanity. <laughs> I, by the way, had a similar um, experience one night when uh, we were going to the um, uh, pre-wedding party of uh, a friend of my wife's, and there was this guy who is a microbiologist and who said that people who work on life extension technology should be shot because they're wasting resources and valuable scientific time. Yeah. So there are all those sort of, I don't want to call them extreme attacks, but uh, very substantial critics coming in from those points of view. How do you deal with them? What do you well, say in response? Well, first I'd say that uh, fear and revulsion of new technologies, especially biological technologies, has always existed. Um, the, when the first smallpox vaccine was developed, it was developed in a way that many of us would find sort of uh, gross if we watched it. It was scraping a tissue from cowpox, a disease on the surface of cows, and using that, uh, injecting that into humans, inoculated them against smallpox. And be, because we have this kind of deep-seated revulsion to biological change, um, that caused a massive backlash. Newspapers ran editorial cartoons showing half-man, half-cow monsters and calling this unnatural. Um, the first blood transfusions got similar responses. Uh, the use of anesthetics during childbirth was actually uh, much derided and called unnatural until I believe uh, Queen Victoria took up the cause and said, no, look, you haven't had a kid. When you're going to have a baby, if you're a woman, you will want this. Um, so it's very natural um, for people to have fear. And to some extent, a little bit of fear is healthy. Um, we should investigate these things. We should look at what the risks are and the downsides. But when we actually do, we find far more upside than downside. Yeah, and, and if I remember the, the small, I don't remember if it was the smallpox vaccine or one of the other vaccines which used hundreds of thousands of monkeys to be tested throughout time. And of mm. course, all of those unfortunately uh, died from smallpox usually. Uh, but on the upside, it had saved millions of, of human lives. 
So, so more, yeah, or, or hundreds of millions, yes, and for the last century. So I personally think the the price was worth it. Yes, but, um, and it, to cut to, to Fukuyama's point that transhumanism is the most dangerous idea. The thing that I want to get across is that it's not a new idea. You know, for time immemorial, as long as our species has existed, people have sought out ways to improve on themselves, to make themselves healthier, to live a little bit longer, to do good things for their kids. Uh, anybody who sends their child to a paid preschool or wants to, you know, read to them when they're one year old, um, all of these, what are those but ways of seeking biological enhancement? You're looking for ways to rewire the brain of your child. Mm -hmm. uh, anybody who uses antibiotics or uh, certainly the people who spend uh, $20 billion a year in the U.S. on sports supplements, most of which don't work that well, what is that but the idea of uh, human enhancement, of self-enhancement? So the downside of uh, not having a limit of how far we can push human development in the process of becoming constantly more than human and then more than more than human and so on and so on has been pointed out on numerous occasions. Um, I mean, you can give examples from Greek mythology um, in the cases of... Uh, Fitness and Eos. You can give uh, the Oscar Wildean example of Dorian Gray. You have Faust. You have Frankenstein with Mary Shelley. And the argument goes that the risks are so big that not only the scientist who invents that Frankensteinian monster uh, can suffer for it, but the rest of humanity can also go down along in the process. So given those huge risks, for the rest of us, shouldn't we just stop testing and such development altogether? Well, I think uh, fiction demands danger and uh, risk, and the risk of catastrophe makes a good story. Uh, none of those would have sold a lot of copies had everything just gone very well. Um, but, you know, when uh, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, life expectancy on this planet was probably around 30 years. And today, it's more than double that across the planet, you know, 67, 68 years worldwide now. And it's 80 years in many developed countries. So contrary to the moral of Frankenstein or some of those other stories, um, the, the effects of this new technology, including technologies that affect biology, antibiotics being one of the very big ones, that effect has been largely incredibly positive. I'm sure it's come with some downsides. Almost every new technology has some downsides, but the overall effect has been um, incredibly positive, actually. Okay, so so let me ask you uh, about the biggest dream of people in terms of uh, positive effect, which is okay. overcoming death. I mean, because that's the bottom line. If you can extend uh, life indefinitely, then in a way you have conquered death. So... Has the time come for death to die? Well, that's a, a big question and eloquently asked. Um, I don't think uh, we will ever get rid of death entirely. Um, I think uh, there's a lot of work on addressing many of the causes of death. Infectious disease, I would say, is one of the ones we're making a lot of progress against. But I think what you were really asking about was aging. And so I do think that uh, we're at the threshold of being able to slow down 
possibly halt and possibly reverse the human aging process. And I think that would have quite a lot of positive benefit to the world. Uh, as we get older, um, our vulnerability to disease of all sort increases. Our healthcare costs rise and our capabilities start to dwindle. Um, if we could delay that, not only would it be a, a personal boon to those who are able to live uh, with more youth and more health for longer, it would be a global boon by being able to keep around the experience and wisdom of these people and keep them smart and, and adaptable and uh, not requiring as much spending in healthcare. Mm-hmm. So, so, so let me ask you about one very uh, interesting per- particular case that I read in your book, and that was about those mice that um, uh, after undergoing cer- certain kind of uh, gene alteration, were able to live 30, 50, or 100% longer lifespans than uh, an average mice is, mouse is expected to live. But the interesting thing is that they would die suddenly um, and uh, over a very short uh, period of time, while just before that they looked perfectly he- healthy, and it is almost... I mean, it looked like it was almost impossible to come up with a cause of death. How, how does that happen? And, and, and then doesn't that say that there's some kind of a natural limiter beyond which we cannot go? Well, so there are two ways to uh, delay death effectively. Um, one is to treat the symptoms of aging, to treat heart disease, treat cancer, treat um, Alzheimer's disease, et cetera, et cetera. The other is to affect the fundamental rate of aging that happens in us. Um, so when we treat the symptoms of aging, uh, we're fighting a losing battle. Even if you eliminated all cancer deaths, life expectancy in the United States would go up by two or three years, a shockingly small amount for getting rid of all cancer. Why? Because as you get older, your risk of everything goes up. This thing called the Gompertz curve, which is that every seven years, your risk of death in total doubles. So even if you got rid of cancer, your risk of heart disease is going up, your risks of Alzheimer's are going up, your risk of stroke is going up, and so on and so on and so forth. So the other approach is to actually address the underlying process of aging. And when we do that, um, animals, we've done it, stay young longer And they do show this phenomenon of staying healthy up until the very end, and then one of their systems goes, and then they die. But they don't show the the model that people fear of frail old age. They're not bedridden and sick and in horrible pain and soaking up tremendous healthcare spending um, for the last period of their lives, Mm -hmm. as many humans are today. Um, They stay young and spry, and then they just go like that which I think is a healthier model in many ways. Yeah, I think it, it's both cheaper and it, it uh, creates less suffering for the person who dies. I mean, it's one thing to die That's right. uh, bedridden for the last five years of your life or something, suffering throughout that whole period. It's another thing to die over a day. Uh, That's uh, right. So I think both ethically for the minimization of suffering and economically for the minimization of cost, I think that's definitely preferable. But I, yeah, go ahead. And in, if extended to humans, that would allow humans to contribute 
or longer in their lives. So imagine you had 60 or 70 or 80 or 90-year-olds mm-hmm. with all of their accumulated wisdom and experience but were as mentally sharp and as able to new thi- learn new things as they were when they were age 20. They'd have a lot to offer society. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, the old saying goes that every time a human being dies, a library burns. And, and yes. I, I think that's, that's very true because... I mean, all of us have learned throughout our lives, hopefully, and uh, it's a waste that we haven't found better ways of communicating this whole knowledge to the next generation. Uh, so prolonging our health lifespan increases that possibility to, to, to communicate it to the rest of society, which would benefit from it. And in fact, you can argue that GDP growth, economic growth, all kinds of gross progress is based on the ability of one generation to transmit its uh, sort of collective knowledge based on which the next generation builds upon. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, there's even uh, there's a case study in this, a uh, bit of a tangent, but in the early 1500s, I believe, eyeglasses were invented in Europe, and they had a remarkable ability. Up until that point, nearly all craftsmen had to stop working uh, in their 40s because they just stopped being able to see things. And so there was a a burst of economic growth produced by craftsmen being able to work for 10 or 20 years longer because now they could see. So it's a similar situation on a much larger scale if we can slow aging. Yeah, that's that's actually a fantastic example I wasn't aware of. Um, But I'd like to refocus our discussion here by going back to the very beginning of your book, if I may. I mean, we, we've touched upon the sort of biggest, most powerful criticisms uh, and about the, the, the biggest promises, perhaps. But if, you, if I'm to put this book in a single paragraph to somebody who hasn't read it, I'd, I'd like to read to them this. Okay. This book is based on a very different premise which is to say different than the premise from Francis Fukuyama and the other bioethicist who criticized any tinkering with the genetic structure of humanity. Rather than fearing change, we ought to embrace it. Rather than prohibiting the exploration of new technologies, society ought to focus on spreading the power to alter our own minds and bodies to as many people as possible. Rather than imposing a rigid view of what it means to be human on humanity, we ought to trust billions of individuals and families to decide that for themselves. Yes. I think that was in the very beginning of your book, and I think that's uh, a very succinct way of communicating about uh, what the whole book is all about, and I think it's fantastic. But let me ask you about something that's not in the book, actually. Uh, Okay. There's two things which are missing here, at least, um, and I want to ask you first this. Um, The word transhumanism, I don't think is mentioned at all in the whole book. Is that deliberate? And if yes, why? It is deliberate. Um, I think to a large extent, the majority of humanity are transhumanists and just don't know it. They've never heard the word. Um, Anyone who uh, has a smartphone is a transhumanist. Anyone who wears eyeglasses is a transhumanist. Anyone who's ever learned to read is a transhumanist. Um, In so many ways... Humans are just uh, clearly interested in things that improve their capabilities 
The only difference between transhumanists, self-identified transhumanists, and most of humanity is that self-identified transhumanists don't just focus on what technologies and products are on offer today. They're looking and wondering what's going to be here 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 50 years from now. So they're kind of more forward-looking. But in reality, for most people, if you show them a service or a product or technology or medicine that will make their lives better, that's been shown to be reasonably safe and is reasonably priced, they'll embrace it. So, but so then, in other words, uh, you accept transhumanism per se, uh, you just didn't want to confuse people by putting that term inside of the book. Is that fair to say? Uh, partially. I also think there's uh, transhumanism is a less unique philosophy than most uh, self-described transhumanists believe. Um, I was invited to join a group on Facebook called Transhuman Separatists. I just added to the group, actually. And I left. Um, I have no interest in being a separatist. Um, we, we're we all transhumanists in my book, and that makes the word not very useful. Mm -hmm. I see. Very interesting. Um, and uh, perhaps now is the time to bring the other word that is missing also from this book, and that's uh, or two words, that's the word technological singularity. So, mm -hmm. again, was that coincidence? Was that deliberate? And why or why not? That was deliberate. Uh, singularity is such a heavy-handed word. Uh, a singularity in nature is a, a place where mass goes to infinity. A singularity in mathematics is a place where we divide by zero. Uh, this, these concepts don't apply to uh, practical futures. Uh, to what's likely to actually happen to planet Earth. So I think uh, the idea of accelerating change makes sense. The idea of exponential change makes sense. That, to me, does not connote a singularity in human affairs. That's, that's very interesting. And hmm, I'm trying to, again, go back at the beginning of our podcast and see if we connect, can connect this with your background and, in, in particular, your experience in coding uh, and perhaps your experience with artificial intelligence while working on Bing. Absolutely. Well, I worked on Bing. I helped start that team, and I worked there for six years. And so I worked with artificial intelligence techniques uh, every day, machine learning techniques. I worked with neural networks for six years there. Uh, other techniques I can tell you about, boosted decision trees, support vector machines, the whole panoply of, of current uh, AI techniques, if you will. And those algorithms are uh, fantastic. They're incredibly effective at pooling signal out of noise, if you will. They are nothing like intelligence. They are nothing like human minds. Um, so that's, that's one aspect of it. Um, a second aspect is the idea of either diminishing returns or um, kind of a superlinear difficulty or sublinear uh, returns on computing power. So if you think about... Um, uh, one of the ideas in the singularity that Werner Vinge came up with, really, was that a computer that is twice as smart as a human could then go on to create a computer that is 2.1 times as smart as a human. And that computer being a little bit smarter, then go make one that's 2.2 times as smart, and so on and so on and so forth, until it just ratchets up. But that seems slightly implausible to me, because for many things... In order to uh, get twice as far in a problem, you don't need just twice as much computing power. You need 
uh, four times as much computing power or 16 times as much computing power or 128 times as much computing power or much more than that. So if you look at the basic equations of quantum mechanics, for instance, we are barely able to solve those for a system that has two electrons in it because they scale absurdly. Uh, the computational difficulty of even the approximations of those systems are the number of electrons in the system to the seventh power. So even as we have exponential increase in computational ability, the amount of that gives you an increase in solving real-world problems is far less than the gain in computation. Anyone who uses a computer sees this. There are many ways in which more computing power is fantastic. It's awesome. But does it actually feel qualitatively like uh, the computer that you have today is 10,000 times more powerful than the one that you used uh, 20 years ago? Um, can you write a book 10,000 times as quickly? No. I've written uh, three books now. And uh, I've got to tell you, uh, the, the Moore's Law has advanced, oh, let's say, a factor of 20 since I wrote more than human. I did not get the, the next book written in 1 20th of the time. If I did, I'd be very, very excited. Uh, but it doesn't work that way. Yeah, that's, that's a great example. And actually, it's a whole other very interesting and very uh, substantive topic. But perhaps I'll leave that for another occasion and use it as an excuse to get you back on the show. Because okay. right now I'd like to move on to your latest book. Uh, because that's the, uh, also another reason that I wanted you to be on the show today. So can you tell us a little bit more about your latest book that you just finished? Sure, I have a book. It, it comes out in about a year, in early 2013. It's called The Infinite Resource, The Power of Ideas on a Finite Planet. And if my first book was more than human, uh, this is almost sort of uh, more than Earth, if you will. It's about what are the limits on planet Earth? Um, how much can we grow our wealth, our, our resource usage, our energy usage, our population? How much food can we grow? Um, it's about the problems that we face right now with climate change, uh, peak oil potentially, freshwater shortages, running out of fish in the oceans – and then the question of how do we overcome those? And it takes the fundamental view that innovation, the production of new ideas, is the most important process we have. Or to put it another way, our store of useful ideas is the most important natural resource that we have because it can multiply or reduce the need for or substitute for any other resource that we know of. So despite all the doom and gloom around us in terms of recessions, uh, environmental degradation, civil unrest, uh, political unrest, and so on, uh, you are still an optimist? I am an optimist, but that doesn't mean that everything will get better or that there are no problems. There are very real problems. Um, climate change is a real risk. It's something that's happening. It is caused by human activity. And... While it's possible it will turn out to be not that bad, uh, it's possible it will turn out to be uh, far worse than uh, kind of the midline expectations. So mm -hmm. it's a large looming risk. Um, oil production has been flat. The number of barrels of oil produced per day has been flat since about 2004. Um, despite the fact that oil now costs five times what it did in 2000, oil companies who are motivated by profit have been unable to pump more oil out of the ground. And that's even as China and India and the rest of the developing world are soaring in wealth. Mm -hmm. um, 
the Olagala Aquifer under the Great Plains of the United States is dropping at a rate of three feet per year in some places as we pump that fossil water, water that takes thousands of years to recharge, back out. Um, o- overfishing of the oceans has caused you know, at least half of global fish species that are edible to humans or that we humans want to crash to endangered levels. So we're doing very real damage. Um, the question is, how do we overcome that damage? And does that damage pose an absolute cap on human prosperity? Um, and the answer there is no, it doesn't, if we're smart, if we make the right decisions to encourage innovation to encourage the production of new ideas in where we get energy, how we grow food, um, how we deal with water, and so on, then the actual fundamental limits to life on Earth are thousands of times beyond uh, where we're at today. And what do you say to the cynics or the skeptics who say, if we're smart, I mean, look out the window. I mean, if we're smart, we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing, or perhaps we wouldn't have been gotten ourselves in this situation in the first place if we were smart. What makes well, you think we, we'll be smarter in the future? Well, I think we've, we've done it before. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, in 1968, a fellow named Paul Ehrlich, who's uh, quite famous and notable, um, wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And the opening sentence of that book it was a bestseller. Uh, the opening sentence of that book was, the battle to feed humanity is over. And he went on to say that no matter what we did at that late date of 1968, nothing could prevent hundreds of millions or even billions of deaths from starvation. And he was writing that in the decade of human population growth at its highest. We added more people to the planet between 1960 and 1970 than any other decade on Earth. But Ehrlich underestimated innovation. Uh, what happened was since 1960 to now, we have tripled food production. We've tripled the amount of food you can grow per acre, not because there's more sunlight, not because there's more land. We farm almost the same amount of land we did now as we did then, mm-hmm. but because we produced higher yield seeds mm-hmm. that put more of their energy into the edible part for humans, uh, had shorter stalks, so they used less energy for that. Um, and in other ways, uh, could be planted twice a year, and in other ways, were just more efficient. And even so, we capture less than 1% of the energy that strikes a field is actually captured as food uh, that we can consume. Um, throughout history, over the longer term, in hunter-gatherer days, it took an average of, let's say, three to 4,000 acres to feed one person. Okay? When Ehrlich wrote his book in 1968, it took about one acre to feed a person. Today, it takes about one-third of an acre to feed a person using the best farming techniques in the U.S. If you look at greenhouse techniques, um, you're talking about one-sixth of an acre. Um, if you look at uh, genetically modified foods that are on the horizon, you're talking about potentially far less. Mm-hmm. So we've done it again and again and again. Here's a second example. Um, we discovered in the the 1970s, um, the idea that uh, the ozone layer around the planet was being depleted. And this was, in fact, a far larger threat to life on Earth than climate change. Climate change is bad, uh, but a change of a few degrees on the planet 
um, as catastrophic as that could be in the worst case, is nothing compared to the loss of the ozone layer. Mm -hmm. Ozone stops UV radiation. If the ozone layer was gone, basically all life on Earth would suffer massive mutations, a really horrible sunburn uh, that produced cancers and mutations. Um, But we actually there banded together. We actually signed an international deal. We signed something called the Montreal Protocol. Um, the work on that was actually uh, initiated by, under President Ronald Reagan, a Republican. Um, the implementation of the U.S. policy to address that was uh, crafted uh, under President George H.W. Bush, another Republican. Um, and now the ozone hole over the Antarctic is actually recovering ahead of schedule, just slightly. So that was a large international problem. And by the way, we solved that problem at a fraction of the cost. Industry representatives said that it would cost as much as $100 billion and that uh, cooling trucks and refrigerators and uh, the transportation of medicines that needed refrigeration and air conditioners all over would all stop working because there was no way that they could find a replacement for Freon, which is one of the gases destroying the ozone layer, uh, fast enough. Um, and there was no replacement at that time. Within two years, there was a replacement. So uh, innovation is incredibly powerful when given the right motivation, when given the right kick and the right need to kick into action, it does. I accept both of those arguments, but I, I'd like to grab just one little fact for my own personal benefit here that I wasn't aware of. Uh, and okay. that's specifically when you referred to the uh, uh, shrinkage of the ozone hole. I mean, I haven't kept up to date for the last couple of years, but I thought it's increasing rather than shrinking. No, so there's uh, the Antarctic ozone hole was the big one. And actually, thinning of the ozone layer across the entire planet was actually the big risk. Um, the ozone hole specifically around Antarctica, was a much more um, kind of symbolic risk. It was, it was found that it wasn't just a gradual thinning, but a big market change that occurs seasonally there. And that raised the specter of a rapid collapse happening elsewhere on the planet. Um, but the Antarctic uh, ozone concentrations during the lowest times are uh, bouncing back a little bit faster than expected. It will still be decades until they're healed. Now, in the Arctic, the North Pole, this past year, uh, we had an anomalously low concentration of ozone. So for the first time this year, there was a really bad um, Arctic uh, ozone hole. But most people consider that a fluke and not part of some long-term trend. Yeah, and I think this year we had record melting in the summer. Uh, and now, by the way, in Canada, we're going through the balmiest, hottest, on average across Canada, hottest winter on record since I think the 1880s or something like that, while Europe is hit by this enormously uh, huge cold uh, front. Uh, yes. With uh, Even in Bulgaria, where I'm from, they're seeing temperatures of minus 20 and 30 in places which this is very untypical of. Um, anyway, um, let's get back on topic here. And uh, I think it's about time to start bringing our interview to a close. So let me ask you the last two uh, questions that I traditionally ask of all of my interviewees. And the first one is this. Where can our viewers and listeners go to find out more information about what you do and your work? I blog at unbridledspeculation.com. One word. Unbridledspeculation.com. Okay. That's great. And the, the very last question that I always ask is this. 
Do you have a single message or a single point that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? Yes. There is a tendency in transhumanism, I think, in transhumanist circles, to spectate, to watch and cheerlead and hope and read books. Uh, what the world needs is solutions. It needs innovation. So what I want to encourage people to do is participate. Go out there and be part of the solution. Go get a degree in a science engineering field. Uh, go advocate for political change to spend more on basic research. Uh, do the things directly to help encourage the process of innovation on this planet. That's, so that's fantastic. Don't be a spectator, but become a, participate, a participant. Ramesh Nam, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you.